If you're new with us, we're working our way through Luke's Gospel, and we only have a few more weeks as we've been in this uh, wonderful book for over a year now. Next week we'll be on the crucifixion, and then the following two weeks in Luke 24 on the resurrection. And now we see Jesus uh, being led uh, like a lamb to the slaughter in today's text. Let's pray. Ask for the Lord's help as we study it. Father, we pray that you would open up our minds and hearts, that we may behold wonderful things from your word, that the words of our mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Work in the hearts of your people today. Stir our affections uh, for the Lord Jesus. May our gratitude uh, for him increase as we look at this text. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Uh, miscarriages of justice are frequently discussed in the news, uh, in documentaries, on podcasts. Sometimes the legal process goes terribly amok. I read of one such instance, not surprisingly, in Kentucky uh, a few years ago in Louisville, Kentucky. It was a very tragic, sad story. A jury couldn't decide whether to convict a man of murder or manslaughter in the shooting death of his girlfriend. And after nine hours of deliberations over two days, the jury flipped a coin and found him guilty of murder. The judge rightly declared that a mistrial. Well, in Luke's account of the trial of Jesus, we also see uh, a, a trial that goes amok. We find malice, disrespect, corruption, and injustice. First, Jesus goes before the religious council. That's verses 66 to 71. It's longer in both Matthew and Mark, if you want a fuller uh, description of, of what went down there. And then Jesus goes before Pilate, and then before Herod, and then we read of the sentencing of Jesus. And at each step along the way, Jesus is found to be innocent. He's the spotless Lamb of God. He's innocent of all of these charges. And He's not only innocent, as we know, He's also sinless. Now, as this drama unfolds, what you see is really uh, kind of these two plans, if you like. There, there is the plan of, of wicked people seeking to put Jesus to death, and there is the plan of the sovereign God who's working our salvation through the midst of all of this mess. And that's pretty remarkable. In fact, Peter's Pentecost sermon, he says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so as we look through the drama, we see these two plans. We see an e the evil plans of men and the saving purposes of God. And we should also note as we go along how uh, Luke is very careful, as uh, the other gospel writers are, to put these events in their proper historic context. Luke, at the birth of Jesus, mentions Herod the Great, uh, Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, the uh, governor of Syria. Now at the end of Jesus' earthly uh, ministry, we see the politicians appearing again. Uh, Pilate is the governor, also known as the, the prefect, and we have Herod Antipas, who's a tetrarch. And Pilate's place in history is, uh, is repeated around churches around the world through the Apostles' Creed. As we say regularly, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. I don't know if you've ever thought it was strange to mention an obscure Roman governor in a very short, concise confession of faith. Why do, we, why do we say that? We, we know why we say the other things. Why do we say he suffered under Pontius Pilate? Well, one of the reasons I think it's there is because it reminds us that what happened to Jesus actually happened in human history. They're not just principles that we confess. There are events that really took place. 
And uh, skeptics through the years, you know, have argued, well, these things didn't happen. It was even believed at one time that Pilate didn't exist. For those who don't believe in the Bible, they, they said for years that there's no evidence of this particular governor. And that was until 1961. And some Italian archaeologists discovered this whole monument at Caesarea Maritima with an inscription to Pontius Pilate, prefect in Judea. He did live, and he was famous enough to have his name on a monument. And it's important for us to remember as we go to the cross here in Luke 23 and then to the empty tomb that what we're reading about actually happened, that Jesus really existed. He really went to the cross. He really rose from the dead. He's really reigning today at the Father's right hand, and he's really coming again. Now, let's look at this text in three parts. Jesus, first of all, goes before the council, and you see the identity of Jesus being emphasized. Then Jesus goes before Pilate and Herod, and you see the innocence of Jesus being emphasized. And then you see the sentencing of Jesus at the end. So let's look first at the hearing before the council. Uh, now that it's morning, you see in verse uh, uh, 66, uh, the elders and the people together, the chief priests, they take him away, and they begin to question Jesus. And we see three titles that are used by or about Jesus. Christ, Son of Man, Son of God. Luke wants us to know who it is that's about to be nailed to the cross. He wants us to be clear on the identity of Jesus. So he preserves this part of the trial. And so the questioners come and they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Now Christ or Messiah or anointed one, it, it carried uh, kingly overtones, political overtones, and uh, the council knows that if they could argue their case to Pilate that this guy is wanting to uh, rebel against Caesar, that he's going to create a revolution, then, uh, then they, would, uh, uh, they would have a favorable ruling from, from Pilate. So it's sensible that they would ask this question, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now if they had been really sincere about this issue, I'm sure Jesus would have answered. But Jesus knows their hearts. So he says, if I tell you, you will not believe. And why did he say that? Well, he had told them enough already to convince them. And every time Jesus went about pr proving his identity to these religious leaders, they rejected him. And so he says, in effect, if I give any of my arguments to prove my Messiahship, you will reject them. I've done this over and over again. Your minds are made up, right? Now, this is the question. That is posed to everybody. Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? Time Magazine reported that more books have been written about Jesus than any other person in history. And usually, those books focus on his identity. That's where the controversy lies. Don't be like these religious leaders already making up your mind if you're not a Christian and, go out and you're just rejecting Jesus and his claims of messiahship. No, be, be like Philip who goes to Nathaniel in John's gospel and he says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. This is the promised Messiah. So that's the first title. The second title is Son of Man. Jesus pivots on them and he says something very striking. As they are uh, interrogating him, he says, but from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now Jesus is about to be crucified. And yet he knows that he's going to be seated at the Father's right hand. 
that the crucifixion is not the end of the story. Previously, he said that the crucifixion was like the exodus leading to glory. And so in their minds, they want him to be killed, and in his mind, he knows he's going to be seated. That he is the Son of Man, this lofty title that Daniel gives to Jesus. And Jesus adds to that Psalm 110 that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That this Son of Man, this divine figure, this ruler and judge of the world will be seated at the Father's right hand. And when has this taken place? Notice what Jesus says, from now on. That he understands his elevation to glory has already begun to take place in this crazy trial. That just assuredly as he will be crucified, he will also most assuredly be raised from the dead and will ascend to the Father's right hand. And here is the irony in this statement. These guys think they're making a judgment of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's going to judge the whole world. I am the Son of Man. And people today sort of have that idea like, I don't know, I'll make up my mind. I'm going to make an assessment of Jesus. Well, that's important and you have to do that. But we should also be mindful that Jesus is the one who will ultimately make the assessment of us. So when you read stuff by people like Richard Dawkins, who is the famous atheist who wrote a book called The God Delusion, he says to believe in any deity is to commit intellectual high treason. But if you believe in the God of the Bible, that's even worse. He says the God of the Bible is, quote, petty, unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a racist, uh, a, a capriciously malevolent bully, and the list goes on. That's an example of one who wants to stand over God and give a judgment of God, deluded by his own intellectual superiority, when it is Jesus who will have the last word. He is the Son of Man seated at the Father's right hand. And even though they want to put Jesus in the dock on this day, Jesus wants them to be reminded of who it is that they're questioning. He would be judged as a criminal on this morning. But he's the one who's coming in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. The cross is not the end of the story. And that's a great comfort to us, that our King is coming again. He's coming again. The third title... Son of God, they, they know for Jesus to, to identify himself as the Son of Man implies a statement about deity. And so they ask him, are you the Son of God? Now here again is uh, an example of, of something that you hear in society that Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, there's a Muslim apologist who wrote, there is nothing recorded in the Gospels showing that Jesus clearly affirmed his own divinity. Well, I think the guys who crucified Jesus would beg to differ. That's why it, they, they got, wanted him killed. Jesus made numerous claims of his deity. And here in this text is another affirmation of that fact, which is not a new topic. It doesn't just pop up here at the end of the story. The very opening chapters of Luke's gospel read that Jesus from Gabriel says that he's the son of the Most High. At his baptism, the Father declares, you are my beloved son. At his transfiguration, the Father declares that he's his beloved son. Now, Jesus is, is not evading the question when he says, you say that I am, but rather affirming the idea. I am, as you say, the son of God. You have just confessed it, even if you don't believe it. Now, Jesus had a much fuller understanding of what this meant, as well as the other titles. 
but he doesn't deny the fact that he is. They know what Jesus says in this statement. They know what Jesus is claiming by his response, which is why they go on to say in verse 71, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They think he's said enough already to incriminate himself, claiming to be the Son of God. And so now they have, they think, a guilty verdict in their hand, and they need Pilate now to sign off on execution. The Jews couldn't execute uh, a person that had to come from Rome, and so that's why they're going to go from here to Pilate. Now, before we get to Pilate, I think it's important to just dwell on this basic question, which is very central to our faith, to life itself, and that is, who is Jesus? If these men would just responded differently, they could have been saved. What they should have said after asking the question, what further testimony do we need, should have been nothing. We believe he is the Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God. But this is a question that everyone must answer. There are a lot of questions that we have to answer day by day and through various seasons of our lives that are important questions like, who is my spouse? What should I major in? Where should I live? Spicy chicken or original today? I'm always told, don't mention Chick-fil-A on Sunday. They're not open. That's not nice to do so. Lots of questions, right? But this is the big one, the identity of Jesus. You know, sometimes people believe the first time they hear the gospel. We tell those stories a lot because it usually doesn't work like that. It can happen like that. But a lot of people, for most of us, it takes some time. Not everyone has a Damascus Road experience. Often people have more of a C.S. Lewis-like experience. Who doubted first that God even existed? And then he ends up believing that Jesus is the Christ. He had many long conversations with his friends like Tolkien. And then he describes this rather, I guess, mundane experience when the penny finally dropped and he believed. He says this, I know very well when, but not how, the final step was taken. I was driven to the zoo one sunny morning. When I set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. Isn't that amazing? He was going to the zoo. He was riding in his brother's motorcycle sidecar. What a picture. C.S. Lewis got converted in a sidecar. Makes you want to have like a sidecar ministry. Just I want to get a motorcycle and a sidecar, get people in there, maybe that'll happen to them also. Well, that, that's a, you know, you hear these things, you're considering these things, maybe that's you, you're not yet a Christian. We just want to encourage you to, to keep seeking, to keep exploring, to keep asking questions. C.S. Lewis was never the same. He believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. And you see, my friends, this is what makes Christianity unique. It is Christ. We're not commending ourselves to people. We're not commending a particular moral system to people. We are commending a person, Jesus Christ, who is unique. John Stott tells the story of a young man in India named Sundar who grew up hating Christianity, despising it as a foreign religion, and at age 15, he per publicly burned one of the Gospels. But three days afterward, he encountered Christ in a remarkable way and soon came to understand the gospel clearly. He was converted and became a traveling preacher. And then one day in a Hindu college, he was confronted aggressively by a lecturer who asked him what he found in Christianity that he had not found in his own religion. And he said, I have Christ. Yes, I know, continued the lecturer, but what particular principle have you found that you did not have before? 
says, the particular thing that I have found is Christ. People ask, why are you a Christian? That's easy, pal. Jesus is amazing. It is Jesus. He came from heaven to earth to die in my place, to rise from the dead, and he's coming back. That's who we commend to the world. We say with the psalmist, whom have we in heaven but Jesus? And earth has nothing we desire besides him. Spurgeon said of heaven, there will be little else we shall want of heaven besides Jesus Christ. He will be our bread, our food, our, food, our beauty, our glorious dress. The atmosphere of heaven will be Christ. Everything in heaven will be Christ-like. Yes, Christ is the heaven of his people. The identity of Jesus. And you see, this is very important because we cannot understand ourselves rightly until we understand Jesus rightly. We cannot understand the world rightly until we understand Jesus rightly. He is, after all, the cornerstone. He's that which gives alignment and definition and purpose to our lives. So we don't, want, don't trip over Jesus as a stumbling stone, but see him as your cornerstone. We get Jesus right, and then we gladly submit our lives to his word, to his will, right? The identity of Jesus. Secondly, the innocence of Jesus. Jesus goes before Pilate and then before Herod. And as mentioned, these, this council needs to get uh, Pilate to, to sign off and and uh, uh, bring about this execution because they cannot do it. And so they bring to Pilate three charges. See it in verse 2. First, they say that this man is misleading our nation. Second, they say he's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And then third, they say he's saying about himself that he's Christ, a king. That he's misleading the nation. Well, he, he has, uh, you know, messed with their religious sensibilities. He's He's talked about the problem of their traditions, uh, but, but he's not misleading the nation the way they're insinuating. And claim number two is blatantly false, that he's not forbidding tribute to Caesar. In fact, he taught on that, didn't he, uh, previously in Luke chapter 20. I think they bring this up in part because one of Pilate's responsibilities was collecting taxes for Rome. So he, he would definitely need to oppose one who is opposed to taxes to Caesar. But then this third one, he himself is Christ, a king. They don't bring up son of God. They don't bring up uh, some of the other claims. This is the one they think will work the best because the Romans did not consider blasphemy a crime. But to have a guy who's saying he's the king opposed to Caesar, well, that's the right button to push. And so that's the, that's the, the play that they make. And then Luke abbreviates kind of the encounter between Pilate and Jesus. It's longer in other accounts, like in John's Gospel, where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. But here he just gets right to it. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. You have said so. You have identified me as such. It's a very similar response to what he just gave uh, the, the council. Now, Jesus, uh, there's, there's truth, in other words, in what you're saying, though Jesus is not a direct threat uh, to Caesar, as the, the Jews here are saying. And Jesus also then, I think, forecasts what Pilate will do. He will put Jesus to death on the charge that he is king. Hang over a sign, a sign over him, he's king of the Jews. Now, notice verse 3, that's the only thing that Jesus says the rest of this trial that Luke records for us. Luke wants to get straight to the verdict. And he's presenting to us this Isaiah 53 lamb of God, the one who went silent to the cross. 
Luke isn't concerned with the longer conversation. He gets right to the verdict, and Pilate says to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. Pilate says, I find him innocent, something that is declared in verse 14, again in verse 22. Again, fulfilling Isaiah 53, that Jesus had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. But the chief priests and the crowd, are, they're insistent, and they say he stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, from Galilee even to this place. They're saying he stirs people up, and that was true. Again, not in the way they're suggesting, but Jesus was stirring up people, as he would call Levi the tax collector to be his disciple. As he tells the story of the two sons, where the father doesn't crush his prodigal son, but welcomes him. He stirred up the whole community of Nain when Jesus stopped a funeral procession, speaks to the corpse, and the young kid got up, and he gives him back to his mom. Oh, Jesus stirs things up. He stirred Zacchaeus up, and he continues to stir us up with his word. And here they're saying, Pilate, you don't understand how problematic he is. This is happening all over the place. And so Pilate has got a problem. And so he does what a lot of politicians like to do. <laughs> he passes the buck. And so he says, well, let me give him to Herod. It was okay for this to happen. Uh, as under Roman law, the, the uh, person could be tried in the place of the crime or in the province where he came from. And so because Herod was over the province of, of Galilee, it was okay for him to make the call. And so Pilate's like, how am I going to get this case out of my inbox? I know, I'll forward it over to uh, Herod. And Herod is both curious and cruel. He wants to see Jesus, verse 8, because he really wanted to see some sign. He, he wanted to be entertained, wanted to be amused by Jesus. And there are many today who have a similar attitude with, with religion. They want to be entertained or amused. This is the same Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. So unlikely that he's going to really listen to Jesus. He does question him. The text says in verse 9 at some length, but Jesus made no answer. Jesus is done giving answers. And you know, in saying nothing, Jesus is actually saying something. He's surrendering himself to the Father's will for our salvation. The silent one is going to the cross for us. They press further, vehemently accusing him, and then Herod decides to mock and shame Jesus, treating him with contempt. They array him in splendid clothing as befitting a king, and he sends him back to Pilate. We don't read of his verdict yet. It comes down in verse 15 as Pilate says that he, didn't find, he found him innocent uh, and, and no guilt, neither did Herod. They both conclude that Jesus is innocent. And Herod represents another type of person that simply doesn't take Jesus seriously. Isaiah 53, we esteemed him not. That could be hung over this text here. And that, that's the problem in our fallenness, apart from divine grace, is we value the wrong things. We don't esteem Jesus as we ought to esteem him. And we need God to open up our eyes to see him for who he is. And that's the testimony of every Christian. I was blind, but now I see and if you see him rightly, if you esteem him today, give praise to God. Herod did not esteem him, neither did this crowd. And it's not clear why these two scoundrels uh, were at odds with each other, verse 12 says, but after this they became good buddies. Friendship is born when there's a commonality, and here there's a commonality that they, they both hate Jesus. 
Psalm 2 says that this would happen, right? The kings of this earth set themselves against uh, the anointed one. They take counsel together. But through it all, the death of Jesus has taken place, again, under the sovereign hand of God. This is what the apostles preach in Acts 4, uh, 27 and 8. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Pilate and Herod are responsible for their own evil, but remarkably they're carrying out the saving purposes of God. And as we journey to the cross, we should have an increased confidence in God's sovereign work. God is often working in surprising ways. This whole trial, this whole event is not spinning out of control. It's in God's hands. And our lives, though we might think it at times, are not spinning out of control. We have a sovereign God who's enthroned in the heavens. Well, the final piece here is the sentencing. What will they decide to do with Jesus? Jesus is brought back to Pilate in verse 13. And this is very Jesus-like. You try to push him out of your life and he keeps coming back. <laughs> Pilate's like, I want nothing to do with him. Go to Herod. And back he comes. And you can stiff arm Jesus all you want, but he just he keeps coming back because you can't decide to do nothing. And that, that's what's Pilate, that's where he's at at this point. You've got to make a decision. I mean, he just claimed to be the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Messiah. You've got to do something with that. You can't just leave him alone. And so Pilate calls the crowd together again and confesses that he finds no guilt in him, verses 14 and 15. Herod doesn't find any guilt in him either. He is the spotless Lamb of God, the perfectly innocent man. This trial demonstrates what the epistles confirm, that he committed no sin. As Hebrews says, he was tempted at all points, yet without sin. Or I like this verse, 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Why has Jesus appeared? To take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Pilate, though, doesn't grant freedom to Jesus. He offers sort of a middle ground solution. I will therefore punish and release him. I'll give Jesus a good beating and then let him go, thinking that maybe that would calm everyone down in the crowd. Pilate is more concerned with convenience than conscience. It's an awful trade. His epitaph could read, he wished to satisfy the crowd. But the crowd cries all the more, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Barabbas. It was customary during Passover to release a prisoner, perhaps a symbol of the Exodus. And they say that this man was a violent insurrectionist and a murderer. They want him to be delivered and for Jesus to be crucified. You can see their shouts in verses 21 and, uh, 20 and 21 as they say, crucify, crucify him. What chilling words. Put him to death in the most painful, disgraceful way imaginable. And Pilate presses back again and he says, why? What evil has he done? There's nothing in him that's deserving of death, but the crowd will not stop. And listen to these words. They were urgent, demanding with loud cries that, that he should be crucified. And this sentence, and their voices prevailed. It was a mob. Their voices prevailed. Crucified, 
by voices. And Pilate is a man without a chest. He caves in, decides that their demand should be granted. In speaking of the motives of the people who put Jesus to death, John Stott said it well. First, Judas handed him over out of greed. Next, the priest handed him over out of envy. And now Pilate hands him over out of cowardice. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus? Two plans converge here at Golgotha. And we have to make a decision. As one writer says, will we be beneficiaries of the plan by which God brought Jesus to the cross or accomplices in the plan by which Satan brought him there? As we know, as Isaiah says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus will be put to death by real human beings. Satan was active, as we've been reading, and involved, but it's all part of God's plan. And even as these people are yelling, crucify him, they're confirming God's plan of salvation. This plan doesn't exonerate the guilty. They are still guilty, but it shows that our God is in control and he's working his saving purposes out in redemptive history and they cannot be thwarted. And in the middle of all of this, in the final verse, final thing I want, to, want you to think about with me is this picture of the gospel in verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Barabbas is the opposite of Jesus. This man deserved to be in prison. Peter noted the difference in his sermon in Acts 3 when he says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Even Barabbas' name is, is interesting as you think about the contrast with Barabbas and Jesus. His name in Hebrew means son of the father. You can hear that Abba in his name, Barabbas. And Jesus is the divine son of the father. Barabbas, though, goes free. And Jesus is delivered up. And my friends, this is illustrative of the gospel, is it not? We are Barabbas. Unholy before God. Like Barabbas, before a conversion, we are on death row. The penalty for sin is death. And after that, eternal punishment. And yet the guilty man in this story is set free. How is he set free? An exchange takes place. His pardon is a picture of what has happened to believers. We were dead in our sins, but thankfully Jesus took our place. He took upon himself our guilt. He dies upon a cross as our substitute, suffering the death that we deserve to die. And by faith in him, we receive righteousness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you imagine what this must have been like for Barabbas on this day? He's on death row, he's sitting in prison, and then he hears of this exchange. It was pure grace. He had done nothing to deserve this. He experienced life because of Jesus' death. And we have life today because Jesus Christ, the pure Lamb of God, traded places with us. He took our place, and He's given us His merits. He's given us His righteousness. The good news of the gospel comes to people on death row. We're free today because of Jesus. 
We revel in Jesus. He is our Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the spotless Lamb of God who traded places for sinners like us. And now we say with John in Revelation, worthy is the Lamb. This slain Lamb that's now standing. As the hymn writers put it, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Praise God, he's looked on him and he's pardoned us. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God and that's exactly who we needed. Let's give God thanks and praise as we pray together. Father, we thank you today for your word for this picture of our Savior that is so remarkable, so fascinating, so unimaginable. Lord Jesus, we revel in your grace this morning. We have right standing with God because of you. May we never get over the wonder of the exchange that took place as you took our place on the cross and you've given us in exchange right standing with God. We think about your death now as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper and we look forward and we'll take it anew with you, and we'll see the one who was crucified for us. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.